well, I don't know, if, if you're like me, when it comes to things like sport or things like movies, you love a clash, a proper clash. We're not just talking about Hearts Hibs clash. We're talking about a Rosberg Hamilton clash. We're talking about those, you know, where, the, where, where they just throw hats at each other because the rivalry is just so fierce. You've got to love that. It's like a Man City, Man United type clash. Not a Hibs Hearts clash. If I said that, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, even in the movies, you know, you've got to love a, a, a good clash again in the movies. Uh, for me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a GRR Tolkien fan. He's got far too many initials in his name, but it, the movies that they made about his books are out of this world. Uh, the books are better, but the movies are great. And in The Two Towers, there is this awesome clash on the battle for Helm's Deep. Who knows about the battle for Helm's Deep? Who knows nothing about Helm's Deep? Oh my. Okay. You've got some homework this week. I've got one DVD of the Two Towers. I'm sure it will get it round by Christmas time uh, and that'll help. You've got to love these epic clashes. Now, some epic clashes are thoroughly enjoyable. But actually, whenever two sorts of people, two types of people, two cultures clash, sometimes it's just not that enjoyable, is it? Actually, sometimes it's a little bit more painful. And I think that's true of the case when, when the gospel is preached in a culture and it clashes with the philosophy and the ideals and the very heart of that culture. There can be a real clash, and actually for Christians, it can be a little bit of a painful thing. Uh, I, I read a guy called uh, and, is it Andrew Turner the other day, who, who a few years ago wrote this, uh, Steve Turner, he wrote this fantastic little creed. So, so a creed is basically where you say, credo, the word credo basically means I believe. And uh, he, he was, he's a, he's a music journalist, and he was writing to, to against uh, the kind of notion or idea today that people don't really have beliefs in UK culture, that people don't really have a set creed of what they believe. Well, he argues against it, and one of the ways he does that is that he writes a creed for 21st century uh, United Kingdom culture. And this is what he says. He says, we believe in Freud and Darwin. We believe that everything's okay, as long as we don't hurt anyone. To the best of our definition of hurt. To the best of our knowledge. And we believe in sex. Before, during and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is helpful. We believe that everything is getting better. Despite evidence to the contrary. We believe that there is something in horoscopes, UFOs and bent spoons. We believe Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think that his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones we read about are. They only differ on matters of, well, creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. 
If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all. Except perhaps Hitler, Stalin and Genghis Khan. We believe in the most recent survey. We believe that what's selected is average. What's average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. That there is a direct link between warfare and bloodshed. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. <laughs> this is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. I believe. It's tongue in cheek. But lots of truth, isn't there? Now take that cultural creed, if you like, tongue in cheek as it is, and compare it with what Christians claim to believe. <coughs> Throughout the centuries, we have the Apostles' Creed, a neat little summary of what Christians believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It's an epic clash, isn't it? And when the cultures, the gospel culture, and our own culture clash, it's not always pretty. Ephesians 19 shows us what happens when the gospel that Paul brings to a city that definitely has its own culture. Ephesians 19 shows us what happens when they clash, and it's a fascinating text. I want us to do is just walk through it together. We'll do it in three little sections, and we'll see how we go. Now, the first thing I want to point out for us in verses uh, 1 through to 7, in this little account of uh, Paul uh, meeting up with John's disciples, the first thing that I think we'll see, even as we take the gospel into, others, uh, into, into our city, and even to other places, we'll see that the gospel will first of all clash with people who think they are followers, but actually aren't. So Paul here finds some believers, disciples, who claim to be believers. If you see verse 1 with me. And when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus, and he found some disciples. And at first he might be thinking, fantastic, this gospel has reached Ephesus before even we have. And this might just be a ready-made launch team for us. How fantastic would that be? But like any good church planter, he knows the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church really depends massively on getting the gospel right, right from the start. It's the, as we've seen through the book of Acts already, it's the teaching of apostles that is the foundation that everything else is built upon. Everything we do, whether it's a declaration of what we believe or our practice within church life and certainly the gospel that we proclaim. Now, he doesn't take any of that for granted. He doesn't even take their claim to be followers for granted. And he asks a couple of questions. 
By the way, did you know that in this, uh, around about this time, what you find in, in original uh, Greek literature was that the word for conversion and baptism were basically used in synonymous ways. So if someone said to you, when were you converted? You could say, oh, I was baptized on the 11th of February. And it would mean the same thing. Because effectively you were baptized immediately. That's, I think, one of the reasons why Paul is asking these questions. Okay? He asks the two diagnostic questions in verses 2 and 3. One, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What answer are you looking for there? Yeah, we did. We have conviction of sin. We know we've received the Holy Spirit. We have conviction of sin. We see Jesus. We believe in Because that's what the Spirit does, right? Points us to Jesus. Shows us who Jesus is, how marvelous he is, and how beautiful he is, and helps us grow in our understanding of who he is. We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Now, it's very unlikely that these, gen- if they are genuinely disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, If they've sat at his feet and learned from him, it's really unlikely that they didn't know actually about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Because John's followers were well schooled in the Old Testament and knew of the Spirit's power and work. Even if I read to you from Mark chapter 1 verses 4 to 8, we read this. John came, this is John the Baptist, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camels hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's really, really unlikely, if they are genuinely John's disciples, that they've never, ever heard of the Holy Spirit. It could be that they just think they're disciples of John. After all, they think they're disciples. Yeah, they they probably do think they're disciples of John. So, what we see here is that Paul asks them the question, doesn't get the response that he's looking for, and then asks them the second question in verse 3. Well, what baptism did you receive? In other words, really, what was your conversion like? Uh, Who are you claiming to believe in, is essentially what he's asking. And they said, well, it's John's baptism. But even as we've just read there from Mark chapter 1, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism was a preparatory baptism. After me is coming someone who's far greater. That was John's message. And what they were to do was in, with John's baptism is basically it involved acknowledging your own sinfulness and getting yourself ready for the one who would totally cleanse you from your sins. Now, Paul's questions reveal that these guys are in no sense whatsoever Christian disciples. Because true Christians repent of their sins. True Christians put their faith in Jesus. True Christians are baptized And true Christians receive the Holy Spirit. Now these guys have none of these distinguishing marks of conversion. So the question is, what do we do with people like that? Well, do what Paul did. Paul teaches them about Jesus. You see that in verse 4? He says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. So Paul teaches them about Jesus. Because it is all about Jesus. He explains John's baptism does not get you in. Actually, what I'm preaching to you today 
and what you're saying you believe, John's disciples, these things are clashing. We cannot believe the same thing and both of us be right. It just doesn't work. And then he tells them to believe in the one that John paved the way for Jesus. Now, what happened when they heard all about Jesus? You know what Paul's going to say here. He's going to talk to them about the fact that Jesus uh, was God himself, came down into this world. Uh, He lived a life of sinless perfection, a life that we could never live. He died that death in our place to take away our sins and bring us redemption. He rose again three days later to confirm that that sacrifice on the cross was accepted by the Lord God and that now eternal life is opened up to anyone who will believe in him and that this Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and is awaiting the day when he will return to judge the living and the dead. He would have preached this message to them, no doubt. And as he does that, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit in the same way as those who had done in other places in Acts. And the Spirit did as he has also done at times in the book of Acts, not every time, at times, filled these believers with power to speak in other languages and to proclaim the wonderful things that God has done. We saw that with the disciples in Acts 2. We saw it with Cornelius. And it just seems like at various points in the book of Acts, as the gospel is almost pioneered into new areas, the Spirit does a confirmatory work, authenticating the gospel message that is preached by these disciples to say, pay attention to this. Listen to this. This is the truth. John Stott in his commentary says, they experienced a mini Pentecost. Better, Pentecost caught up with them. Better still, they were caught up into it. That's good. And here we see that all the spiritual deficiencies that we see in them at the very start of the text are met in Jesus Christ. They're met by hearing the true gospel, the full gospel of Christ's death and resurrection for them. Now you might be sitting there thinking, how does this apply to me today? I actually, I don't know any disciples of John. I don't think any exist anymore. I don't think they do. I'd be surprised. So how does this apply? Well, although we might not be likely to meet people who think they're John's disciples, we might be likely, well, we are likely, I think, to meet people who think they're in. People who think they are Christians, but in fact they're not. You might live beside someone or work beside someone who, when they hear that you're a Christian, will happily say, hey, me too. Yeah, me too. I'm a Christian. Yeah. My encouragement for us in in those circumstances when we hear that is, is really not to take these things for granted. Not to take those claims for granted. For there are lots of people out there who like the idea of identifying with Jesus. Uh, The Barna research that that was released a few months ago Uh, called Transforming Scotland, looked at the state of Christianity and spirituality in Scotland. This is what they found. There were lots of people who liked the notional idea, maybe 55%, if I remember rightly, who liked the idea of identifying with Jesus and thought, yeah, that's all right, I'm quite happy to, to consider myself in terms of Christian terms and all that kind of stuff. And then when they asked the deeper down questions, how many of you actually believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? It was about 4%. It's telling. Okay? So that means that instructs us and helps us understand that we need to be asking the right questions. Now, I think the the possibility of meeting people 
who think they're in but aren't is probably more likely for those of you who are older than it is for those of us who are younger. (laughs) Don't be put off by the grey now. So, I mean, I think younger generation might be less likely to meet someone where you might ask this because, well, the younger generation really haven't had the Bible taught in school like the older generation have. And they didn't have this kind of cultural Christianity where most people 40, 50 years ago went to church. Uh, we don't have that nowadays. That's the reason why I make that, that, that statement. But although it might be true, it can definitely be proved wrong. But lots of older people went to church. Um, maybe even some people prayed a prayer at some point. Lots of people asking Jesus into their heart. Not many showing evidence of continuing in the faith after that. These are reasons to ask good questions, helpful questions. I suppose one of the questions, I mean, Paul gave us an example, didn't he? Um, what baptism did you receive? It's basically a way of saying, tell me how you became a Christian. How did you become a Christian? What, what did it look like for you? And then listen carefully to the story. And if there's zero mention of sin, zero mention of repentance, zero mention of Jesus, then we can base our questions around those core beliefs and try and either draw that out or maybe, it's because, maybe someone's surprised because you've sprung the question on them. Try and draw it out. And if it's not there, find ways to talk about Jesus. Maybe ask questions like, well, what church do you belong to? Oh, I wouldn't go to church full of hypocrites. Well, you could tease that out. Because actually the Bible says that there's no Lone Ranger Christian. You can't really follow with obedience the commands of the Bible concerning Christianity on your own. It's impossible. You need others. Or you can ask, what have you been reading in the Bible recently? Oh, I never even take it off the shelf. You know, these are, asking the right questions, drawing out answers helps. Now, the tougher questions I suppose to ask relate to those who really do think they're believers, but the life that they live completely contradicts the beliefs they claim to hold about Christianity. I mean, I know someone who, who claims to be a Christian but would think nothing of having sex outside of marriage. I remember meeting a couple when I was at university. I'd just become a Christian. And I remember them saying, so uh, I remember talking to them about these kind of things. And they said, oh, we still have sex. And they weren't married. And they said, but we pray before we do. I was like, wow. Okay. I've only been a Christian for like three months. And I think the Bible's really clear on what God says about that. Uh, I also know someone who claims to be a Christian, but happily has our palm read every six months. You know, these things are just inconsistent with what we claim to be true, with what people claim to be true. And I think we are not surrounded by John's disciples, but we're surrounded by people in our city, many who claim to be Christian or have some kind of loose affiliation, but are regularly calling the things God calls evil good. Do you know people like that? What should we do with them? Exactly what Paul did. Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus all the time. Isn't he the most wonderful person you have ever met? Uh, Though you do not see him, John says, you love him. Yes, we do. Because he's, as we were thinking about this morning, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints, rescued us, redeemed us, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. We love him for what he's done. I didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. 
And yet we have a great saviour who so graciously reached down to rescue us. Talk about Jesus as he thrills your heart, as you're wowed by his salvation. And we should do this gladly. Tell them about Jesus. Show them how, even how your belief in Jesus matters and how it makes a difference. Show them how it has changed your life. Tell them what your life was like before you became a Christian, how you became a Christian, and what life has looked like after you become a Christian, how life has changed. Shape your testimony well. And you'll have a great opportunity. Tell them about the wonders of Christ. Share them some of the Bible with them, some of the Bible verses that have just reached down into your soul and brought you face to face with Jesus and you've just been broken. It's been so wonderful. Share the things that have deeply impacted you and pray to God that he would deeply impact them. There's lots of things we can do and pray that God will give you the joy of seeing people repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, be baptized having received the Holy Spirit. The second thing that we see in terms of these clashes that the gospel and culture brings is that the gospel will clash with people who want God's power, but not him. This is verses 8 to 20. This is a tasty section. What does it say? Well, you've got Paul. He he establishes his... He's already established a pattern in in the book of Acts, hasn't he? Really about the way he goes about ministry and as he goes into a new city... He applies his basic church planting strategy. He, he enters the city. He, it's almost like he looks for the low-hanging fruit of the people who have some kind of religious notion in their life. And certainly with the Jews, of course, he had some affiliation, having been a Jew, having been schooled in Judaism. So he enters the synagogue, reasons with them from the scriptures, shows them, as we've seen all the way through Acts, that Peter has done and Paul has done, that Jesus is the Christ, and that he suffered and then entered glory. And when they eventually kick him out, he goes to the more neutral location of the Hall of Tyrannus, um, which basically means tyrant. I wonder, uh, yeah, his parents really must have hated him, or he was really quite a wicked boy in the town. Maybe that was his nickname, Tyrannus Rex. Sorry, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. Anyway, um, what we see is that he, Paul goes and teaches Uh, Probably in the heat of the sun after Tyrannus has finished lecturing in the morning. He begins in the early afternoon. And Paul then, for a couple of years, establishes a teaching base, a training base there. Look with me at verse 10. See what happens as a result of this. This went on for two years. So that the next word is all. Do you get that? All. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia. Now, that's not all of Asia, as we imagine it, you know, all the way out to China and the Far East. and so He's talking about all this area of of what we would know as modern-day Turkey, where you've got Galatia, Cappadocia, all these places as they were in the first century. And all who lived in this province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I think that's an astounding thing. In two years... Now, it's either the case that people, because of the the cosmopolitan nature, the trade center that Ephesus was, that people kept coming and they were stopped by and they were like, this guy is in the the lecture hall at the end of the road. It seats about 20,000 people. And and like, people are coming and listening to this guy and he's preaching about Jesus and it's impacting people. Or these people who've come and heard Paul are then going back to where they've come from, like Colossae, 
For example, as we're looking at this morning, it's likely that in this time, this is when Epaphras came down, heard the gospel, went back to Colossae and planted the church. It's an incredible thought. Now imagine substituting the province of Asia for Edinburgh in that text, or for Scotland. Shouldn't that be our prayer? Shouldn't it be our hope for all the churches faithful to the word, uh, to preaching the word of the Lord in this nation, that all people who live in Scotland and the UK would hear the word of the Lord? What an ambition! And Paul is preaching the gospel faithfully, teaching them to the point that we'll see in Acts 20 next week or in a couple of weeks, um, where Paul says that he did not hesitate to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And he even preached Leviticus. You know, he's preaching through the whole counsel of God, teaching them about what it said and how it pointed to Jesus. It's an incredible thing to see. And God blessed the preaching of his word. Look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Now, some of you have been thinking, what is he going to do with this text? What is all this about? Are we we starting up a sanctified hanky ministry? You know, I've I've actually got one in my pocket. No, we're not at all uh, because that would be crazy. Now, the, the thing is here, this is not normative. This is, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. The fact that Luke, even as he writes this account, calls these miracles extraordinary miracles, tells you that. A miracle in itself, by its very nature, is extraordinary, right? This is an extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary event that he's talking about with these hankies and aprons. And and it it is, it's a fascinating thing to see. So what's happening? Well, the Holy Spirit is doing his work to authenticate the message that is preached with miracles as signs. And signs, by virtue of the fact that they are signs, point to something. That's what they do. The same happened with Jesus. Uh, the, The signs that Jesus did authenticated the message that he preached. They authenticated his identity, his claim to be the eternal son of God come to cleanse sinners from their sins. The same happened with Peter. The same happened with other disciples. The same is happening with Paul. Now you say, how come we don't see miracles like that today? How come God's not authenticating the word that you're preaching with some miracle? You're saying, come on, get your hanky out again. We know you've got an apron at home. You watch Mary Berry. No, I don't. Um, no, this, this is, as I've said, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And I wouldn't want us to go away thinking that the signs are the main thing. Signs are signs. And throughout history, I think the Bible is apparent that when these signs come in clusters at specific times to authenticate times when God's word is proclaimed and he is doing something immense, pioneering, new. Then we come to this, so you've got this situation where these extraordinary miracles are taking place. And you've got a certain group of people in Ephesus who are really quite super keen when it comes to the miraculous and the spectacular things. In fact, um, what we find in, in Ephesus, it was such, it was such a, with the, the temple of Artemis, uh, or Diana as the Romans knew her, Uh, This goddess of uh, fertility and sex and all these other things. 
you know, her temple was there. The city's whole culture kind of revolved around the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. And, well, in comes the Apostle Paul. Um, sorry, I was telling you about this. In comes there are all these different types of spirituality there. And there's, there's a bunch of Jewish... They're almost like these sons of Sceva that we, we saw here in verse... 13. I've got a bit of a soft spot for these guys. They're totally evil, but this, the story is kind of funny. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of like local Jewish ghostbusters. Um, if you look at verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, that was their job. Like, it looks like, how do you get a job like that? How do, how do you qualify for a job like that? These guys, uh, driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, these guys clearly are not believers. Uh, they are going around saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And quite clearly, they're not really seeing much success. But one day, they got the fright of their life, and they end up basically in conversation with a fallen angel. Look with me at verse 15. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Well, the demon didn't even give them a chance to answer. And he literally beat the pants off them. I mean, these guys, am I allowed to, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, I'm sorry. Um, like, you know you lost a fight when, you, 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 when at the end of it you've got no clothes on. Let's fit. And they're bleeding, they're injured, they're wounded. And it's showing you the power. They try, and mis- they try and take the name of Jesus, invoke that power that is not theirs. And they want something of the power of God without the Son of God. And that's unacceptable. And it's almost like God is the one who is at work in this whole situation to bring glory to his name. Because the result of this, even the, the demon's testimony, if you like, of the fact that he knows about Jesus and he's heard about Paul. In other words, we know all about these people. That you read that the name of Jesus was held in high honor. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. So what happens? The name of the Lord Jesus is held in high honor. People are seized with fear. A holy reverence for God. They recognize Jesus for who he is. Not a genie. Not some, some name to be invoked. But the Lord of heaven and earth. And people became believers. They repent of their evil deeds. Now, when you take Jesus seriously, you take sin very seriously. And the people demonstrated the genuineness of their repentance and the seriousness by which they took their sin, as we see in verse 19, that they, a number who had practiced sorcery, so here are the power brokers, spiritual power brokers, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread 
and grew in power. So when these guys burned their scrolls, there is evidence of conversion right there. They understood that it was better to turn their evil books into fuel for the fire. And these were like spell books. To turn their evil books into fuel for the fire than to sell them on eBay to fuel someone else's idolatry. And even with the testimony of this demon and the work of the Spirit in converting these people who thought that they could dabble in the power of God without believing in the Son of God were changed. And once more we see that even though two cultures had clashed, verse 20 tells us that the word of the Lord still spread widely and grew in power. Still, the word prevails. Haven't we seen that again and again in this book of Acts? Now, how do we apply this? Anyone ever met any descendants of the sons of Sceva? No, clearly. But we do meet people who have a leaning towards spiritual things. I mean, recent polling trends show us that the number of people ticking the Christian box without question is down. The number of people ticking the atheist box is actually fairly stable. It's gone up a bit, but not an awful lot. It's the number of people ticking the spiritual box that's gone up. And that's interesting. And basically what it tells us, and maybe you know people like this, people who like to build some kind of hodgepodge of, of, of different spiritualities. Who try and do like a, I don't think Woolworths exists in Edinburgh. When I was a little kid, I used to go into Woolworths and you had the pick and mix. You still get, you get pick and mix things at the cinema, don't you? It's like a pick and mix. They do this with the different spiritualities and different aspects of cultures all around. So they like to, they like to meditate and do yoga. You know, there's, there are all sorts of different things. They'll pluck different bits from other spiritualities and cultures and faiths and try and put them together. It's like some kind of custom-designed belief. And we might well meet people like this. We might meet people like this in, a, in, in, in various ways where we actually just have to do what, what the Apostle Paul did with the disciples of John. And again, get to Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Tell them about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and actually... The exclusivity of believing in him. There is no way apart from salvation by grace through faith in him. That there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. That we must trust in him and in him alone for salvation. We might meet people who are dabbling in spirituality and looking to use power that actually they, sh- they should not be invoking in terms of the occult. It's quite rare, but it's not impossible. Those who claim to be able to harness the spirit world actually are not its masters, but its victims. And we should share the gospel with them. Though we may clash, the word of the Lord can spread and prevail. I suppose there's a broader warning for those who claim to be Christians, but who like to dabble in power and I suppose in the form of prosperity gospel is where we see this most. And I worry again for many of our older members who like to watch televangelists on the TV. I don't think many of our younger folks do, although maybe some do. But I've spoken to quite a few older people 
over the last few years who like to watch certain people on TV who like to swing their jackets around and who don't do much talking about Jesus and who just like to try and flatten people in some form. We have to be very cautious about these things. People who like to dabble in power rather than focus on Christ. The preaching of the word is the primary means of changing life. And God will show that as we preach his words, well, we can pray that this fear of the Lord will prevail. The fear of the Lord will come. People will come to a healthy appreciation of who Jesus is as the Lord of heaven and earth. And that people will see that the word of God as it's faithfully preached is true and trustworthy, can be banked on. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this sounds to you. I might not have described how you think as we've talked about the disciples of John or the sons of Sceva. But we are, all of us who do not know Jesus, caught up in our own little culture. We're living in ways where we don't honor God as the Lord and King of all our lives and we don't give Jesus Christ the acknowledgement that's due his name. Our encouragement for you is to recognize that this word, this gospel that we preach is true. And you should explore it. You would do well not to disregard it without digging deep into it. You should ask the person who brought you or one of us at the door after the service to help you figure it out. Help someone to help, help you find someone to help you figure it out so that you might ask for yourself, is this true? And it may be the case that your experience of coming to know Jesus Christ would be like some of those who had practiced sorcery in Ephesus. You might find some of the things that you had put your hope in before as actually ungodly and contrary to the love and joy and grace and goodness that God actually wants for your life. You might consider all these things that you once treasured and valued as worth nothing. You would gladly rubbish them burn them now that you own the greater treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ our prayer is that you would do that even do that today to pray and confess your sins before God to believe in Jesus who died on the cross to take away the sin of all who would trust in him and to receive eternal life life in his name our prayer is you would do that today I'm going to keep the rest of the passage till next week let's bow our heads and let's pray.